Well, good morning again. Thank you all for coming out. No, we are not finished with First and Second Samuel, but we're going to stop with First and Second Samuel and go on to the book of Psalms this morning. There is so much more I'd like to say about First and Second Samuel. I actually did a five-message series through it one time, and I put that into one message yesterday. But there's another interesting thread, whereas David through First and Second Samuel <clears throat> is a type of Christ. And you begin to see the redemption story unfold through David as their Messiah with a small m from which the greater David with a capital Messiah with a capital M would come from. When we see that, then we begin to understand our place in First and Second Samuel. We are to see ourselves as Israel in that book in need of a savior, and David as a type of our savior. And what David did for Israel, Christ does for us. So that's what we're, that's what we are meant to see in first and second Samuel. But there is another thread that you could run through first and second Samuel that would be very interesting. That is Saul. Saul was the very best that humanity had to offer. He was head and shoulders above all the others. He was man's answer to man's need. He was the best, and yet the best that humanity comes up with produces the worst of humanity. He was humanity's best and produced humanity's worst. Go through 1 Samuel chapter 15 and look what the flesh looks like. You want to see what the flesh at its worst is like when there's a stronghold comes over human nature and you will see Saul with his blindness, his gaslighting, his guilt tripping, his shifting the blame to others, his refusing to admit anything. And when he finally admits it, well, yes, but it's their fault. And on and on and on, you see the worst of it. Study the life of Saul sometimes in First and Second Samuel if you want to know what humanity at its finest is. Without God, without a Messiah or a Savior. So, this morning we're going to go to the book of Psalms. And I'm going to read a scripture from Revelation 2. Then later on in the message, toward the end, I'm going to come back to the scripture in Revelation 2. Beginning in verse 24. But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden, but that which ye have already hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. That word power means authority over the nations. And he, you and I, is referring to he that overcomes. You and I will rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers even as I, Jesus, received of my Father. And I will give him, you and me, the the morning star. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Hope that makes a little more sense when we get toward the end of the uh, message. Before I begin... What is context? Anybody? 
What would you say is the opposite of context? Josiah, what's context? Okay, now you're talking about scriptural context. Yes, in scripture, the passages surrounding it. In particular, what are the passages before and after? What kind of context? Literary context. You've learned well. Thank you. Um, You also have biblical context. You also have historical context. Different kinds in scripture. Context is simply what surrounds a statement made. What's the opposite of context? It's what we call a soundbite. Just like... Go to town. What do you mean? I don't know. I don't know who he's talking to. Nothing. I know nothing of the context. Context must be understood. We know that in everyday language. You cannot understand what somebody is saying if you don't know the context. You know, when I was learning French years ago, my wife and I, we would overhear snatches of what people were saying, and it was hard to understand what they were saying because we had no context. But when we talked face-to-face and could have the conversation going, we knew those little sentences, especially when it was early on when it was hard to understand the words, we could easily understand them if we knew the context because we just knew what naturally would come next. And we could have these conversations, but just overhearing little snippets, a sentence here, a sentence there from somebody on the street was hard to understand. So context is very important. The Bible cannot be understood outside of context. There is context in the Bible. Literary context are the verses before and after that give immediate definition to it. Biblical context is other places in the Bible that refer to the same subject or event. Historical context context is what happened in the history. What was the history leading up to this point so that you understand things? And a good example of historical context would be when Saul in 1 Samuel 15 built himself a monument... After disobeying God with the Amalekites, he built himself a place, the King James says. It says monument in the ESV. If you understand the historical context of what's going on, you will find that when God first ordered Israel to destroy the Amalekites in the wilderness before they came to the land of Canaan, and and Aaron and Hur held up the hands of Moses so that he could, he was able to, um, Israel was able to prevail through his intercession. After that, God said, I want you to build a monument to me and call it Jehovah Nissi, which means Yahweh, our banner. For I will utterly wipe out the remembrance of Amalek. So he said, the destruction of Amalek is going to be under my banner. And this memorial is a remembrance of that. What's Saul do? When he is charged to fulfill the destruction of the Amalekites, he doesn't do it and goes and builds his own monument, in essence saying, no, it's not Jehovah Nissi, it's Saul Nissi, Saul our banner. You begin to see, because of the historical context, the depth of Saul's rebellion, putting himself in the place of God. So that historical context puts a little bit of light on that and how serious that is. So if I say this, honey... There is spilled milk on the table, and you overhear me saying that. What am I saying? You don't know. You have no way of knowing because you have no context. So, have you ever wondered? So, so if I also say, so if some morning, uh, sorry, I 
I glanced at the wrong note. Now I'm trying to readjust my mind. If I say, honey, there's spilled milk on the table, you have no way of knowing what I'm saying because you have no context. But if I get up in the morning and you're watching me from the living room and my wife and I go out and we start frying eggs and I start setting the table and I say, honey, there's spilled milk on the table. What am I saying? Now you all understood the context. You understand that we're saying one of us has to clean it up, right? If our anniversary comes along and I take my wife out to Olive Garden to eat to celebrate our anniversary and the waitress takes it over to the table and sits us at the table, I say, honey, there's spilled milk on the table. Now what am I saying? Let's find another table. You just know that because of context. If it's bedtime in the evening and our kids come to us and say, Dad, can we have some cereal cereal before we go to bed? I say, no, we just ate. You had plenty. Just go to bed. You don't need any. Next morning I get up and I look at the table and say, honey, there's spilled milk on the table. Now what am I saying? Saying they disobeyed. You see how context determines meanings, meaning? Even so, without knowing the context of the individual Psalms, we will not fully grasp the meaning of the book of Psalms. Have you ever wondered what the book of Psalms is all about? Did you know that the book of Psalms was Israel's hymnal? It's called the Psalter. P-S-A-L-T-E-R. The Psalter. It was their hymn book. The Psalms were what Israel sang in their worship. And so they were singing deep doctrinal truths and imprinting these truths on their hearts through song. Folks, lyrics are important. Choose the lyrics, the words of your songs carefully. Because music will put a message into your heart like I can never do standing up here and speaking to you. Choose your lyrics carefully as a church. There's a lot of songs out there with shallow lyrics or blatantly false lyrics. And people don't pick up on it. So the book of Psalms was what they were imprinting on their hearts. Have you ever wondered about the imprecatory Psalms? Does anybody know what imprecatory Psalms are? The imprecatory Psalms are the Psalms where David prayed curses on his enemies and you read them you're like wow david why so vindictive that's not very christian what's going on with these imprecatory psalms god knock their teeth out tear them to pieces make their father make their children fatherless and their wives a widow what's going on was david really that vindictive if you follow his life his life i mean he showed a lot of mercy to people who came against him on a personal level, why the imprecatory psalms? Do we teach the, uh, the imprecatory psalms to our children? Maybe we should just shy away from them because that's not godly. And I don't want you to learn that kind of vindictiveness. What's going on in those? I hope we'll understand by the end of the day why the imprecatory psalms. Have you ever wondered why so many of the psalms that are written about David are fulfilled in Christ? The New Testament goes and quotes the psalms and says... This, thus Christ fulfilled this, and you go back and read it, and it's about David. Not about Christ, or you think it's not about Christ. Did you know the Psalms are actually Hebrew poetry? I think probably a lot of us would have known that, right? 
Psalms are Hebrew poetry. Do you know how Hebrew poetry works? They, in our poetry today, we have lines, stanzas, and the ending word usually rhymes with a line or two lines before that, and it gives a musical flow to things. What they didn't, their poetry did not consist of <coughs> rhyming words. Their poetry consisted of what we call parallelism. That means, there were, I'll just give you a few of them, but if you read the Psalms, you will find one line says something, then the line underneath that will either say the same thing in a different way, which would be reinforcing what was just said in the one before, or it will say the opposite in order to contrast what was said before. And then there's some other types of things. And sometimes it is a mix of these as you go through. So if you say, for example, the Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth keep silence. The question is, what temple? Solomon's temple? Or his temple and throne in heaven? Besides the fact that Solomon's temple had not yet been built, the Lord is in his holy temple. The next line underneath, let all the earth keep silence. Oh, it's contrasting temple with earth. So you see that it's talking about his temple in heaven. Because the contrast brings that out. You want to understand the Psalms? Understand Hebrew poetry. The book of Job is Hebrew poetry as well. Psalms. Proverbs, more or less, and there's a lot of poetry throughout the Bible besides whole books. First Samuel 15, when Saul, uh, when Samuel pronounced his verdict on Saul, the, uh, Saul, he said, um, "Rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness as iniquity and idolatry." That whole verdict was poetry. See, and stubbornness is iniquity and idolatry. He is reinforcing what he just said by saying it in another way: "Rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft, because you have rejected the Lord." Contrast opposite, the Lord has rejected you from being king. So you find that poetry all through the Bible. <clears throat> have you ever wondered about the vivid imagery in the book of Psalms and in other books of poetry? The earth moving, the earth not moving, fire and smoke coming from God's nostrils, the earth reeling and staggering like a drunken man, the earth breaking forth into singing, and so forth. And people take this and they say, oh, the earth not moving, the earth moving, and they try to build science out of that. It's not meant to be science. It's meant to use imagery in order to reinforce a point. And you have to understand that. It's not meant when there's talks about smoke coming out of God's nostrils. It doesn't mean that God is literally up there smoking or smoke coming out of his nostrils. It's imagery that is being used. We use that imagery even today. Um, and we instinctively know that the imagery in our poetry today is not meant to be taken literally. For example, um, well, I'll, before I give you an example, just like poems of today, it is made use of imagery to appeal to the emotions so that the truth of what they're saying penetrates our hearts more deeply. So when imagery is used, like I said, we naturally do not understand it as literal science, either in the Psalms or in our poetry today. So when, in Isaiah 24, it makes use of, uh, use of imagery and poetry, he says, the earth reels and staggers like a drunken man. 
the earth is greatly moved. We do not read that as the earth actually staggering around and reeling like a drunken man. We understand it to be using imagery to describe the tremendous upheaval that earth is experiencing because of the judgment of God. And you read in the literary context of Isaiah 24, it's reeling and staggering because of God's judgment. Here's an example of poetry from today that we instinctively know is not to be taken literally. How many know the poem, The Beautiful Snow? Oh, the snow, the beautiful snow, filling the sky and earth below, over the housetops, over the streets, over the heads of the people you meet, dancing, flirting, skimming along, beautiful snow, it can do no wrong, flying to kiss a fair lady's cheek, clinging to lips in a frolicsome freak. It's a long poem, but I'll stop. Look at that imagery. Is it literally, does snow literally dance? Does it literally flirt? Does it literally kiss a fair lady's cheek? Does it literally cling to lips in a frolicsome freak? No, we know that. But by using that imagery, it penetrates our hearts. And what it's trying to say is like, wow, Psalms does the same thing. That's what the vivid imagery is for, to have the same effect on us as that poem has on us when we read it. We don't read that and begin to study snow and say, well, yeah, snow dances, it flirts. Let's take dancing lessons from it. It's God's way of dancing and so forth. But that's what people do when they go to the book of Psalms sometimes because they don't understand that imagery. Have you ever believed the book of Psalms is simply individual Psalms of praise or prayer, arbitrarily arranged? Did you know you cannot arbitrarily rearrange the individual chapters in the book of Psalms and have them say the same thing? The individual psalms build on each other. In order to understand one psalm, what happened in a psalm before that? In many, many places. And if you rearrange that, all of a sudden you lost the context. There's actually context there. In other words, the individual psalms need to be understood in the context of the surrounding psalms. Many of them build on each other. But what is really important to understand is that the book of Psalms is actually five books. Did you know that? How many knew that? How many of you have a print Bible as opposed to electronic Bible? Print Bible, raise your hand. Do you have it along? Turn to Psalm 1. Very likely if it's a print Bible, it's going to say book 1 in the beginning of Psalm 1. Turn to Psalm 42. Above Psalm 42, it's going to say book 2. Turn to Psalm 90. Above chapter 90, it's going to say book 3. Turn to Psalm 107. No, Psalm... I think I missed something. The first book of Psalms is the first 41 chapters. Chapters 42 through... Boy, my mind's blank. 72. Yes, thank you. Go to 73. In the top of 73, it's going to say... Book 3. Go to 90. On the top of chapter 90, it's going to say book 4. Go to 107. On the top of 107, it's going to say book 5. In the original Hebrew, it was divided into five different songbooks. Each of those books have a theme. And if you want to understand what any given chapter is saying in there, you've got to understand the theme and the time period for which it was written context 
Now, I'm going to make a disclaimer here. I am still in the process of studying the book of Psalms, and there's a lot that I'm grappling with. I don't know how every chapter fits into this stuff yet because I haven't studied this in light of every chapter. But I'm going to give you a framework through which to study it on your own so that you're using the same framework that I use as I continue to study it. (coughs) What are the five books about? The first book consists of the first 41 chapters. This book is about the king. It introduces us to the king, Israel's savior. The second book is the one I'm the weakest on as far as my grasp, full, full grasp of it yet. So I say this lightly. There's, there's a thread that runs throughout it somewhat, and I've been told and taught it teaches us about the depravity of man and Israel's failure to keep the covenant God made with Moses because of an unregenerate heart that they had. Now, I want to study that out and flesh it out in more details. But the third book consists of chapters 73 through 89. This book reflects and sings about the tension going on in Israel's hearts as they grappled with the reality that they were now captives in a foreign land. The Assyrians had taken the northern kingdom of Israel captive. 120 years later, the Babylonians had taken the southern kingdom of Judah captive and carried them away, and now they were no longer in the land of Israel. They were in the land of their captivity. That's where Esther took place. That's where the book of Daniel took place. That's the setting. And they are singing these songs, chapters 73 through 89, and they're, make, they're singing and they're like frustrated. They're, God, you promised when you made this covenant with David that I, you swore by your very holiness, I will not lie to David. I will not alter the thing that's gone out of my mouth. I've sworn by my holiness I won't do that. His throne shall endure forever. But, Lord, you've cast his throne to the ground. Where are we now? His throne doesn't exist anymore. God, you have not been faithful to that covenant. That's what they're singing. And they're like, God, what happened? That is the third book and what it's about. Now, you say, I thought these psalms were written before their captivity. Many of them were. The Spirit of God moved them to write prophetically for that time period. See, Psalms is a book of prophecy. The fourth book consists of chapters 90 through 106, and that's building on the third book. So now they're in the land of their captivity. God, quote, broke his covenant. That's what they thought. But suddenly in the fourth book, chapters 73 through, no, chapters 90 through 106, God himself, the king, steps in. And you see him walking through the land of their captivity and gathering a people to himself. We'll look at that more closely tomorrow. Gathering a people to himself, redeeming people, and they realize he has not forgotten his covenant. He has not cast that covenant he made to the ground, the throne of David. But here he is coming back to them, experiencing this judgment, and he's redeeming a people to himself. The fourth, the fifth book consists of chapters 107, 350. They are no longer in the land of their captivity. They have left it, but they are not yet back in Jerusalem. They are marching back to Jerusalem on the road, and they're singing those psalms from 107 through 150. Now, 
In order to understand the book of Psalms, we must understand the Davidic covenant, the sure mercies of David. In order to understand that, we must also understand the Mosaic covenant, the covenant God made with Moses at Mount Sinai. So we're going to go over the Mosaic covenant and the Davidic covenant. We already talked about the Abrahamic covenant two days ago, so I'm not going to go over that. There's no need to repeat it. Just remember that the covenant with Abraham was both certain. God was saying, if I don't fulfill it, let me be cut in pieces and cease to exist like what happened to these animals. That is the Abrahamic covenant. But it was also conditional. It was conditioned on Abraham being righteous. But its fulfillment was as certain as God's own existence. Was Abraham righteous in and of himself if in the very next chapter he went out and went into Hagar? No. How can he? So whenever we find a covenant made in the Old Testament that with God that is both conditional and certain, conditioned on man, conditional on man fulfilling certain obligations, but very certain, sworn by God his holiness or God's existence, then we find God himself stepping in to meet the conditions. And that's what happened in Genesis 15. God signed the name and said, I will meet your conditions, Abraham. That way the conditions are met and I can certainly fulfill it. And he met those conditions by imputing righteousness to Abraham and he was righteous through faith. Because of Abraham's faith, he imputed that righteousness to him. So now we have God promising Abraham to bring blessing and salvation to all the earth through Abraham's offspring. God himself met the conditions by imputing righteousness to Abraham, and thus God fulfilled the conditions required of Abraham. Later, we find God making another covenant with Israel. <clears throat> this covenant took place at Mount Sinai and is known as a Mosaic covenant. Mosaic comes from the word Moses. Mosaic covenant. That is because God made it through Moses when he gave the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. The Mosaic covenant was a covenant of works. This covenant was also conditional. I will fulfill my promises to you if you walk in righteousness. But the Mosaic covenant was not certain. God never met the conditions. God did not keep the conditions for Israel. The terms of the covenant were this. The man that does these things shall live by them. We know this live by them is referring to eternal life, not just a quality of life in this life, because Jesus said as much when the man came to him and asked him what he had to do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus quoted, do this and you shall live. The conditions of that covenant. You want to know what you need to do? All right. Obey the commandments and you'll live. And it's in the context of asking about eternal life. Jesus said, live means eternal life. The man said, I've done it all. Jesus said, really, you have? Let's see how well you've done it and put him to the test. And the man discovered he hadn't kept those conditions. So what Jesus was really saying is, you want eternal life? Do it. Man said, I've done it. Have you? You really think you've done this? Let's see how well you've done it. And in the end, now, do you see why you need a savior? That's what's going on there. You haven't done it. You better forget about trusting in the Mosaic Covenant, is what Jesus was in effect saying. 
So <clears throat> Jesus responded by pointing him to the law and reminding him of the promise, the Mosaic covenant. If Israel kept the covenant, God would grant them eternal life and salvation would come to them through works. This covenant consisted of the Ten Commandments. But one of the conditions was that they had to keep this covenant perfectly. If they failed even once in any of the Ten Commandments, they would be cursed and eternal life would be forfeited. This, this stipulation is found in Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. Cursed be he that confirmeth not all the words of this law to do them, and all the people shall say amen. What does that word confirmeth mean? The New Testament tells us what it means when it quotes this verse. The New Testament quotes this verse and words it in a way that makes it very clear. Galatians 3, verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law or the works required of the Mosaic covenant are cursed under the curse. And why are they cursed? Why did every person who has ever tried to attain eternal life through the Mosaic covenant end up cursed? Because it says, cursed is everyone that continues not in all the things that are written in the book of the law to do them. Every one of them failed at some point. And God knew they would fail. In fact, the Mosaic covenant was made precisely for the express purpose of cursing them. God knew they would fail. Romans 5 brings that out. The law entered in order to increase the offense. Because, then it brings out in Romans 5 later, because grace is not grace where nobody is cursed. You have to experience a curse so I can show grace. We could go deeply into that, but we're not going to go deeper than that. Just hold that thought in the back of your mind, and I'm not going to go, I could spend an hour or two proving what I said by going through other passages of scriptures. So here, the Mosaic covenant was God's offer to man to attain eternal life and to bring the covenant with Abraham to fruition through being righteous on their own. We have a picture of a tree that has been planted. The seed grew roots. The root was the Abrahamic covenant, the promise made to Abraham, I'll do it. The tree grew. The main trunk of the tree and branches were the nation of Israel under the Mosaic covenant. It's like the Mosaic covenant was a very fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, is this simply something I'm imagining? That the Mosaic covenant... Was that? No. The Bible explicitly says the covenant made under Moses was meant to be the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. It's like Israel was keeping the righteous requirements that were required of Abraham to bring the Abrahamic covenant to fruition. Israel was supposedly keeping the conditions. God imputed righteousness to Abraham, kept Abraham's part of it. But he said, Israel, you keep your part of it, and I'll fulfill it all in you. The reason I can confidently say this is because the Bible itself says so. The Bible says that the Mosaic Covenant was Israel's attempt at keeping the righteous requirements that the Abrahamic Covenant demanded. In 1 Chronicles 16, verses 15 through 17, it says this, Be ye mindful always of his covenant, 
the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, he's talking about the Mosaic covenant. Be mindful of that covenant, even of the covenant which he made with Abraham. See, I made this covenant with Abraham. Be mindful of it as I gave it to you. And of his oath to Isaac and has confirmed the same. What's the same? The Abrahamic covenant. I have confirmed the Abrahamic covenant to Jacob, Israel, for a law. And to Israel for an everlasting covenant. The law, Israel, is your chance to bring the promises I made to Abraham to fruition through your works. That's what these verses are saying. There was a problem. Israel could not keep the righteous requirements of the Mosaic Covenant any more than you and I can today. The reason they could not keep these righteous requirements was because their flesh was too weak to keep them. What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. God sending his only son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. What's that saying? The reason the law could not save anyone was because the weak link in obtaining eternal life through the law was not found in the law. It was found in the flesh inability to keep the law. That was the weak link. Romans 8. I just quoted. Man is fallen. Man is depraved. And aside from the quickening power of the Holy Spirit, he cannot live in righteousness. And Israel did not have the Holy Spirit. And they did not have regenerate hearts or renewed minds. Deuteronomy 29 says so. Moses is telling Israel, yet the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear unto this day. See, your problem, Israel, is you don't have a heart-mind transformation took place. That's why you can't keep this, is what Moses is telling them. See, God gave them something he knew they couldn't keep so that they wouldn't trust in it and begin to look to him for answers and for salvation. The very purpose of the law was to bring Israel under a curse. As I said, Romans 5, verses 20 and 21. The law entered that the offense might abound. God knew full well that Israel would never keep the righteous requirements of this law. And so nothing remained but to curse Israel for not keeping this law. When Israel was cursed, they were then in a position to receive salvation by grace through faith. By failing this law... Israel was in a place where God disowned them as a people. We find this in the book of Hosea. When they turned to God in faith, the book of Hosea said, I will not be your God and you will not be your people. I'm going to give you all the curses that I've promised would come on you if you don't keep the law. I'm going to disown you. And by the way, in Romans 9, when God, where it quotes that, this passage from Hosea, when God opened the door to Israel who were not his people, he opened it to all who were not his people. Gentiles included. The law entered so that the Jews could be on the same footing as the Gentiles, so that Jews and Gentiles, like together, could experience salvation by grace through faith. When they turned to God in faith, God opened the door of salvation by grace through faith to rejected, not my people, Israel. And so doing, opened the door to all who were not his people, Gentiles included. God knew full well Israel would not never keep this covenant. Israel was sure their problem was a lack of education. Israel was sure 
that if they only knew the law of God, they could keep it and be righteous. All right, what we're lacking is education. Our problem, the reason we walk in sin is we don't really know the law of God. That was their mentality. So God gave them their education by giving them a law that perfectly reflected his own righteousness. You keep this law, the Ten Commandments, in perfection. Your righteousness will be enough to get to heaven because it's a perfect reflection of how righteous I am. Israel was thrilled when he gave the law. We finally have our education. What did they say when he gave the law? Oh, no. And all the... uh, uh, Exodus 19, verse 8. Here's their response when they finally got the law. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses returned the words of, words of the people to the Lord. God, they said, all right. They said, thank you for this covenant. Thank you for telling us what we need to do. Now we'll do it. Do you know most revival, I shouldn't say most, much of revival preaching today is nothing more than a repeat of this scene. A call to surrender ourselves to obeying God and commit ourselves to God with no gospel that brings heart change. And there's emotions that are appealed to. And just give yourself to God and people love it when you do that. You want to be a popular preaching? Send your people home with a backpack of guilt on their back. Because they love When something is presented to them as, do this and you'll live. Like Israel loved it and said, yes, we will do it. But after a few days, they discover they're not doing it. And after a few occasions, year after year of going to those meetings, they get disillusioned. What was missing? The gospel of transformation that enabled them to do it? That's what was missing. You know what God's response was to Israel? When they said, all that the Lord has said we will do, and they were excited for their education. You find it in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 29. Oh, that there were such an heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always. God said, Israel, you think your problem is education. You're excited to try it. Your real problem is a heart change. You don't have a heart change. I wish you had a heart that is able to do that. That is why the new covenant that we're under promises I will give them a new heart and write my laws on their hearts. That's what the new covenant that we're living under has that the old never had. Their problem was not a lack of education. Their problem was an unregenerate heart. Immediately after the giving of the law, before Israel took one step further, God instituted the sacrificial system. Why? So that Israel would be able to find pardon by grace through faith for breaking a law that God knew they would break. And thus, the law testified of Jesus by showing them, you need to find pardon outside of your works. You're trying to do these works and you're failing. So the very fact that you need to sacrifice blood sacrifices shows that it's not your works that's saving you. But Israel took the sacrificial system and made it another work. Now, let's go look at the Davidic covenant briefly. 
This is a covenant that God made with David. And this covenant was a covenant that promised to fulfill the promises made to Abraham through David's seed. This covenant is also called the sure mercies of David in the Bible. The Davidic covenant was also conditional. It was conditioned on the throne of David being occupied by a righteous king. But the Davidic covenant was also certain. In fact, God swore by his holiness. You can read about it in Psalm 89, (laughs) the last chapter of the third book of Psalms. God swore by his holiness to fulfill the covenant with David, which was the promise to use his offspring to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. The Davidic covenant is first made, first recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God came to David and made this covenant with him. Then in Psalm 89, you will read this hymn they're singing in Psalm 89, reminding God of the covenant he made in 2 Samuel 7. And they are filling in details in this hymn that are not mentioned in 2 Samuel 7. So one of the most complete, if you want a complete picture of the Davidic covenant, read 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 89. Because some of them, uh, the one gives details that the other does not. 2 Samuel chapter 7. And it came to pass that night that the word of the Lord came unto Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus saith the Lord, Shalt thou build me a house for me to dwell in, whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day, but have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle. I'm going to skip for lack of time. I'm going to skip reading the whole thing. But it goes all the way to verse 16. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee, Thy throne shall be established forever. That's the promise. Sure mercies of David. Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4. I have made a covenant with my chosen. They're reminding God what he said. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn unto David, my servant. Thy seed will I establish forever and build up thy throne to all generations. Selah. Verse 19. Then thou spakest in vision to thy holy one and saidst, I have laid help upon one that is mighty. I have exalted one chosen out of the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil have I anointed him. With whom my hand shall be established. Mine arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not exact upon him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. And I will beat down his foes before his face and plague them that hate him. Verse 26, he shall cry unto me. Thou art my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Also, I will make him my firstborn, higher than the kings of the earth. My mercy will I keep for him forever, and my covenant shall stand fast with him. His seed also will I make to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. If his children forsake my law and walk not in my judgment, if they break my statutes and keep not my commandments, then will I visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from him, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail." My covenant will I not break nor alter the thing that is gone out of my lips. Once have I sworn by my holiness, I will not lie unto David. His seed shall endure forever and his throne as a sun before me. It shall be established forever as the moon and as a faithful witness in heaven. Selah. So the Mosaic covenant was tied into the Abrahamic covenant. And the Davidic covenant, when Israel sinned and broke their end of the covenant made through Moses... They violated the conditions of the contract. So God had to cast them off. God had to void the covenant he made with, uh, with Moses. But he promised to fulfill through David. 
God could not alter the fulfillment of the promise that he had made to Abraham and to David without violating his holiness and his very existence. So back up to the illustration we used of a tree. What's going on? God cut the tree off down to the stump. He cut everything that they had done through Moses off right down to the stump to the prom- where nothing but the promises and his righteousness imputed to Abraham remained. Then a tender branch grew out of this stump. This tender branch grew into a great tree. The root and the stump was there by God's righteousness. See, the tree regrew. All that they had attempted to fulfill through Moses was whacked off, and it started over with Abraham, with Christ himself. It's the, the addition of the tree was cut off because of Israel's failure to be righteous. Then the branch that grew into a tree to replace the one that was cut down was Christ. And thus Christ is repeatedly called a branch, the rod of, uh, the, uh, the rod of Jesse. He's called the root and offspring of David. See, Christ did everything in the root through Abraham. And he, the tender branch, was the offspring. And it was all Christ. He is called the root and offspring of David. He is the beginning and the end. He is the Alpha and Omega, the A and the Z, the A and the Z, the beginning and the end. Salvation became the righteousness of Christ from beginning to end. David was not righteous. Most of his descendants were not righteous. But there was a man, Christ himself, of his descendants who stepped onto that throne and met all the righteous conditions needed to fulfill the Davidic covenant. And so God himself said, all right, Israel, you failed. That covenant's done. Away with it. Let me start over with a tender branch coming out of this and let it all be me. I personally will step in and meet the conditions that you failed to keep under Moses. I will meet him by being the righteous king stepping onto the throne of David. And if you go back as far as Abraham, all the way up through the Old Testament, all the way into the New Testament, you will see that salvation to every individual from that time to this has always been because of Christ and because of me and my righteousness. And Moses and that covenant never saved a single soul. If you understand the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and... The Davidic covenant, the sure mercies of David, you have a framework through which to read the Old Testament. If you don't understand those covenants, much of the Old Testament will be obscure to you. Today, we are all included in the fulfillment of that covenant God made with David. Acts 15 tells us that Simeon has declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets as it is written. After this, I will return and I will build again the tabernacle of David, which is fallen down. And I will build again the ruins thereof and I will set it up that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called. Do you see that? All the Gentiles are included in the fulfillment of the sure mercies of David. All of us are recipients of that. I believe in order to understand Psalms, 
and the rest of the Bible, we need to read it through a covenantal framework. Understanding these covenants sheds so much light on the Bible as a whole and even on the gospel. <clears throat> there are many folks today who are trying to turn the new covenant into some form of the Mosaic covenant. They do so in reaction to easy believism. I say run from those teachers. Now let's go back to Psalms. I'm not going to cover the whole book. When did I get up here? I'm not sure. I tend to ignore the clock. Okay. All right, we're going we're gonna to cover part of the Psalms and finish it tomorrow. Remember, David was a type of Christ. David's throne was Christ's throne. Isaiah 9, verse 6 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom in to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. Talking about Christ, this verse explicitly says that the throne of Christ was David's throne. Let's look what Peter has to say about the writings of David being about Christ. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him. Now listen. He is going to quote Psalm chapter 16 here. And he's saying David in Psalm 16 is talking of Christ. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with a oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, David, seeing this before, spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he, his Christ's soul, was not left in the grave, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus had God raised up where we are all our witnesses. You see, David knew he's going to die. In the covenant made with David in Second Samuel 7, God said, when you lie down with your fathers, he knew he's going to die. David knew he's not going to be the one to fulfill this promise. <clears throat> David knew he was going to die, and Peter stated clearly that David was a prophet. Peter said David was a prophet. So Peter said that David, being a prophet, looked ahead and saw the resurrection. Peter even went so far as to say that David knew when he said, you will not leave my soul in the grave. 
that he was actually prophesying of his descendant Christ. David knew he wasn't talking about himself. Peter said so. He knew he's talking about his descendant, about Christ, in Psalm 16. And he knew that when he penned Psalm 16, he is writing about Christ's resurrection as a prophet. Peter said that the people were able to take a stroll down to David's tomb right there in Jerusalem. David had not risen from the dead, so he could not have been talking about himself. And he knew full well that he was talking about Christ. But get this. David talked about Christ prophetically, knowing he was talking about Christ, and used the first-person pronoun, my, or I. Now do you understand why the New Testament writers go to the Psalms and say this was about Christ, and you go back and read it, and David is writing about himself. David knew full well when he wrote about himself, he's actually writing about Christ. Because David knew he's a... David may not have understood this in every psalm. I don't know. But God did. And God moved on him to prophetically write these things. And so, New Testament writers, they understood that. They understood very well what I'm telling you today. And they could freely go back to the book of Psalms and again and again and again say, this is a fulfillment of Christ. And you go back and read it and it's like, but that's talking about David. Yeah. Peter says David knew when he used the first person pronoun, I, that he's talking about his descendant Christ. Because he was a type of Christ. What happened to David happened to Christ. What happened to David's throne happened to Christ's throne. The Old Testament is about Christ. Listen, if we teach the Old Testament in a Jewish synagogue, if we can teach the Old Testament in a Jewish synagogue and not call the stir, we have not expounded it correctly. If the way we preach the Old Testament is acceptable in a Jewish synagogue, we have not preached it correctly. We've missed the point. What caused such riots in the Apostle Paul's day? Preaching the Old Testament. He simply brought out to these Jews what was there all along. He showed them Christ in the Old Testament and it caused all these riots. 2 Timothy 3 tells Timothy that the Old Testament was able to make him wise to salvation through faith that is in Christ Jesus. You've known these scriptures from a child, Timothy. These scriptures you've known from a young child teach you about salvation by, uh, by faith in Christ Jesus. And he's referring to the Old Testament. Jesus, on the road to Emmaus, did not teach the disciples new information. Jesus educated the disciples by doing what on the road to Emmaus? He did not give them new information. He showed them what was in the scriptures all along. Jesus showed them in Moses and the prophets and in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This means that the Old Testament is all about Christ's suffering and subsequent triumph as seen in his kingdom. If the Old Testament is about Christ then would it not be strange if the largest book of the Old Testament, the book of Psalms, would not be about Christ? If all the prophets spoke of Christ and David was a prophet, then David had to have spoken about Christ. I want to read in closing, and then we'll go on through the book of Psalms tomorrow. I didn't get as far today as I wanted to. 
I wanted to cover the first two chapters today, but we won't get there. Luke 24, verse 44. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Now, if you look at that word, the, in front of the word Psalms, in the prophets and in the Psalms, the word the is not in the Greek. The Greek would read like this. And he said unto them, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and Psalms. And there's a rule in Greek that when there are two nouns used, With one article, the, they're referring to the same thing. In other words, it's not saying the prophets as one category and the Psalms as another. But because the Psalms doesn't have the word the in front of it in Greek, it means the prophets and Psalms means Psalms is included in the prophets. So right there he was saying the book of Psalms is actually one of the prophets. So he opened up. So... How does the Apostle Paul use Psalms to preach the gospel? Look at Psalm 32. Paul quotes Psalm 32 in Romans 4 to preach salvation by faith. Psalm 32 was written in a time when the sacrifices of animals was needed for pardon. Noticeably absent from this psalm is any mention of animal sacrifices. David makes reference to Noah's flood of judgment on the earth to show what it will take to escape God's judgment on sinners. He says in Psalm 32, verse 5 through 7, I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin, Selah. For this shall everyone that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. Thou art my hiding place, Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. Isn't that beautiful? Psalm 32, written in the time of animal sacrifices, says, if you want to find pardon, you pray to God. And the waters of judgment that covered the earth in Noah's, when God judges the earth, you'll be safe. The Apostle Paul uses this, these verses in Romans 4 to prove salvation by grace through faith. This was a prophecy of salvation by grace through faith. So tomorrow we're going to pick up in Psalms chapter 1 and 2 and give a much better overview of the book of Psalms. But I had to lay that foundation for it today. May God bless you.